From beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts, this is Returns on Wellbeing, the podcast that brings you the latest and best thinking from today's business and healthcare leaders. We share strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines and address two of their biggest concerns, the cost of healthcare coverage and the engagement of their workforce. To guide us on this quest, here's our host, Jim Purcell. Welcome to the Returns on Wellbeing podcast. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, one in five Americans experience mental illness in any given year. And depression is the leading cause of death and disability in the world. Serious mental illness costs America almost $200 billion a year. But despite the tremendous cost to individuals and to employers, over 50% of mental illness goes untreated. Today we will discuss why that is, what employers can do about it, and explore new approaches to addressing mental health in the workplace. Our guest today is Dale Cook, the co-founder and CEO of Learn to Live, a healthcare company that provides online programs and tools for employees suffering from mental health problems. Learn to Live's unique approach combines cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, with remote teletherapy to help employees of large health plans, small and large employers, as well as colleges and universities, more conveniently access mental health services. Dale, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Jim. I appreciate it. Your company addresses a very real challenge, enabling employers to help their employees get the mental health services they need. What, in your opinion, is the condition of today's workforce as it pertains to good mental health? Um, I think, you know, increasingly people are beginning to look at ways they can learn to better manage stress and their mental health risk. Uh, but as you were mentioning, we have a long way to go, and mental health problems are incredibly common. About 44 million adults over age 18 in the U.S. report having had any mental health condition during the past year. Mm-hmm. People are going on disability for mental health problems in record numbers. In fact, depression is predicted to be the number one driver for dis- disability by 2030. Mm-hmm. And uh, depression and anxiety alone have a significant economic impact. I think the estimated cost of the global economy in the U.S. is $1 trillion with a T per year in lost productivity. So Oof. it's certainly, uh, certainly substantial. I have seen a statistic that stress, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse account for more lost work productivity than all other chronic illnesses combined. That just is shocking. It is shocking. And uh, while there are some organizations, especially now these days, who are starting to track that data, many of the conversations we have with health plans or with employers or colleges and universities uh, don't realize that. Uh, they haven't quite done the math in that way. And uh, it's it can be very eye-opening. Uh, stagnated wages, gutted retirement plans, and significantly bigger out-of-pocket costs for health care uh, together with student loan debt and, and those sorts of things have placed the lower third of the paid American workforce in severe. Have you seen anything about that? And would you like to share with us your thoughts on that and how that fits in with what you do? Just overall, say, cost of health care, even against, you know, either stagnating, stagnating uh, wages uh, or other financial stresses, 
uh, can significantly impact, you know, people's mental well-being. And so we see that a lot in our program. Someone may be working through a program for generalized anxiety, uh, what we call stress, anxiety, and worry. And what we find is really there's a lot of uh, financial distress uh, that's underlying that. And yep. certainly uh, that, that can become very prevalent at work, as you sure. know, um, and come out in any number of ways. But we, yes, we certainly see that quite a bit, and it's, it's meaningful. Some employers seem to believe that employee mental health issues are none of their business, an invasion of privacy. And of course, you got a number of employees who feel the same way. What role do you feel that employers should play in addressing this issue? Well, certainly, I think it's it's a balance. It's certainly a nuanced topic, and absolutely, you know, we believe nuanced messaging. I think if if any organization, including us, is reaching out to someone who may be suffering. You know, how you reach out, just as you would to a friend that you're concerned about, uh, is really important. I think our our point of view, or even my personal point of view on that, would be that it's incumbent upon us as employers to do everything we can to uh, ensure and enable and empower our employees' well-being. And that includes mm-hmm. mental fitness. Again, we like to think of it as mental fitness versus, mm-hmm. you know, the, the pathologizing of mental health. And so in the same way that we would like to make a, you know, a, a health club membership available, we want to make mental fitness opportunities available. So I think part of it is how you have the conversation, I think, and, and again, without pressuring employees. Um, I think the other is as you think about providers and the way you do it, you know, organizations like ours, you know, we de-identify that information when we report back to sure. our clients. And so... Uh, that's one of the ways, and other organizations do it too. And mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing to think about is how do we offer this benefit with assurances, real assurances of privacy so that the employees can feel that, A, I don't need to use it, but B, it's great my employer offers it, and C, there's a uh, reasonable degree of assurance here that I won't be identified and I can do it really stigma-free or fear of discrimination-free uh, and use the service. If you could list two or three items that would help employers learn how to reduce the issue of stigma, what would they be? Uh, one of them is for uh, individuals who are in a position to do so, to be able to recognize the signs mm-hmm. uh, of someone who might be struggling. Uh, one of the ways that we can get around this stigma is to educate people on how to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. I think another would be you know, making the access to tools as easy as possible. Um, and so I think another thing is to for employers to just think creatively, just like not all of us get in shape the same way or not all of us follow nutrition in the same way. So to the extent that we can offer um, our employees opportunities for, for, for choice in the way they do that. You know, third, at least from a kind of a macro level, is uh, there's real benefit for employers, for example, or health plans, but if we're talking about employers, for investing uh, in people's mental health. And so I think if they're they're willing to. There's even a, a great business case to be made. Aside from the social mission, uh, there's a great business case to be made for employers to really invest the time and energy, which includes a lot of uh, a lot of awareness uh, activities. The idea that so many of our physical ailments really have mental and emotional um, causes that you become physically ill because of certain mental and emotional barriers to living healthier lifestyles. Is that what you found? Well, we certainly have. I mean, there's there's close, close linkage. Roughly, you know, 50 to 60% of those with a chronic condition 
have comorbidity, have another condition that is, that is mental health related. Uh, depression may have a hard time with their diabetes because they're having a hard time getting exercise or activating as we call it. And uh, physical and mental health are very closely related. Now, uh, another of the key barriers are out-of-pocket costs for mm-hmm. talk therapy, face-to-face therapy, which, you know, depending upon where you are with deductibles and co-pays can cost uh, in the hundreds of dollars. Uh, mm-hmm. Any suggestions on how employers can address this challenge? Uh, what we have found is is a good number of employers we work with uh, choose to take on that expenditure directly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what they find is, and, and when I say that directly, what I mean is covering that at 100%. And yep. so they're paying that for their employees. There is, there is substantial evidence showing that uh, that kind of investment, so even paying 100% for talk therapy for all your employees, even for employees and family members, can provide a meaningful, even a financial ROI, if that's mm-hmm. the goal of the organization, uh, across measures of absenteeism, presenteeism, you know, reduced disability claims, you know, reduced visits to the ER for panic attacks, which can be very costly. I mean, all of these things are directly related to the degree to which uh, employees can afford uh, and feel comfortable accessing these services. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly one way we, if, if employers are asking us, we encourage them to to consider that. Yeah. I, I, I suppose for any preventive care office visits, one might be well informed to eliminate copays and deductibles for them. But right. m- mental health office visits, uh, unfortunately, still are different. So, you know, any any greater encouragement we can give in there, I, 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 I really like what you just said about uh, you know, exempting those from copays or deductibles and, and covering those with first dollar. Anything we can get them into the door really, really that's helps. Right. Now, that's mm-hmm. great. Um, and making therapy more convenient to access. I know this is in your wheelhouse, but, mm-hmm. you know, we know how difficult it is. Uh, if, if you work a nine-to-five job, that's right. uh, how do you find a, a, a face-to-face talk therapist, psychologist, or psychiatrist before nine o'clock or after five or on the weekends? With access, I think the other benefit of employers covering that cost is employees are less restricted, say, by a network and Mm -hmm. they have more choice. And so if there is a therapist maybe in their area that can see them at night or on weekends that wouldn't otherwise be covered by a behavioral health benefit, it's terrific because Mm -hmm. the employer's paying for it anyway. And now you have someone that's actually taking those steps. Uh, to address a very serious and very cost-inducing situation uh, because they can access it, you know, at the nights or on weekends. All right. Uh, your company, uh, Learn to Live, focuses on providing cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Uh, tell some of us who do not know as much as you, what is CBT and how does it work? The best way to explain it is that really CBT is a set of powerful tools, being the operative word, uh, tools that help people get past problems like anxiety, such as depression. You know, and, and years of clinical research have made it the most proven model yet for these challenges. And not everyone knows that, but it's really the most evidence-based form of face-to-face therapy uh, that we have. And it's it's really based on the understanding that our thoughts about situations create our emotions. Uh, but it's not the situations themselves. And so we get past depression, stress, anxiety, when we learn to modify the way we think about it, modify our thoughts, and then harness our behavior patterns 
that keep us stuck. And that mm-hmm. last part about leveraging our behavior patterns is really the often the most powerful part, and it's sadly is most frequently omitted. Yep. Uh, now, it clearly has become central to your model. Why is that? Well, you know, one of the reasons is that it's the most evidence-based. So, you know, like unlike mm-hmm. other and many alternative therapies, you know, CBT brings a tremendous decades and decades of evidence-based research behind it. But further, you know, what we offer is what we call online CBT. So given the, the structured nature of the CBT clinical protocol, um, online CBT is actually not new either. It's been around for almost two decades. And so we bring not just CBT, but the, the best practice online CBT mm-hmm. that's been proven in research uh, into our programs because at the end of the day, um, we can get high engagement, we can get high utilization, but if we don't have that clinical evidence-based foundation, you know, then ultimately we're, we're kind of another buzzword in digital health. We're not really helping people um, significantly and, and consistently um, really address their mental concerns, if that yeah. makes sense. Most of us are familiar with the face-to-face model, but web-based therapy uh, is, is somewhat different. Describe how this works and tell us, is this really as good as face-to-face therapy or not? The internet therapy isn't, is not new. You know, it started in the UK, in Scandinavia, and then made its way over to the US. But, you know, 200 plus gold standard clinical studies have shown that really for mild to moderate suffering, and low complexity problems. So think, you know, depression or anxiety, not schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Online CBT or digital CBT or computerized CBT, as some call it, is at actually as effective, clinically speaking, as in in-person therapy with the same long-lasting effects. And really, it's in, in that sense, it's not surprising because the same tools are learned that are learned in the therapy office can be presented if they're presented you know, appropriately online, consistently delivered and packaged with, you know, the compelling user experience and the way that, you know, people learn online differently often than mm-hmm. they learn face-to-face. And that's more just of a, a learning theory <laughs> um, issue that's not a clinical issue. So if that's done correctly, um, it can be as effective. And our programs typically are eight lessons. Each lesson is about 45 minutes of seat time you know, on average, our members engage, I think, five or six minutes at a time. So you can imagine that some will go through, you know, eight lessons in eight weeks. Some may go through in, you know, three months. And so there's there's definitely a self-directed, self-paced approach to it. Mm-hmm. But each program is about eight lessons. And then we have these tools that our members practice in between the lessons. Yep. And uh, you also have on your website an assessment tool, which... I assume you would ask people to take before they engage in their programs. We do have a comp- what we call a comprehensive assessment at the beginning that covers, you know, the dimensions of social anxiety and general anxiety and depression and insomnia. And these are gold standard assessments mm-hmm. that you would also see in primary care. But individuals can skip that if they want to. Um, if they go go ahead and say enroll in in the depression program. In that first lesson of the depression program, they still receive a mini assessment, and so that provides us with that all very important baseline, uh, as you can imagine, for for measuring their their psychometric success, if you will, because there's assessments with every lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they can skip that on the front end. Most don't. I think um, over 80% of our members do that assessment at the beginning because it helps them 
learn about themselves and can be a guide for for what they do next. Yeah. I took the assessment and I thought it was okay. pretty comprehensive. Uh, I believe it took me between five and seven minutes, so it wasn't that long. Part of the goal here is to help people understand what's going on and do it in a very safe, private way mm-hmm. uh, so that they can learn and then, and then decide if they want to have conversations with other people about it. Now, can you tell us about a company that's taken this approach, uh, you know, what led them to work this way and what the results might have been? One of our first clients uh, named Antea Group, mm-hmm. uh, they're based here in Minnesota. They came to us in 2016 you know, after a thorough review of their really what they would call their mind, body, and life benefits, which is terrific. And they had a lot of successful programs, you know, for healthy eating, uh, financial management, uh, with very strong engagement, and yet they felt a resource to add alongside the employee assistance program, which, you know, they were seeing low utilization with. They needed something to really help increase the reach and provide an alternative that could engage people in their mental fitness. And so the leadership champion the program you know, helped start the conversation, which reduced stigma. And we did we did some training. We rolled out our programs, and uh, to this day, you know, we're seeing over 20% of their total population using our our programs and services every year. So mm. it's a pretty pretty compelling um, you know thing for them. And of course, for us, it's always a double-edged sword. We'd like to see high utilization, but of course, it's a reminder that <laughs> there are a lot of people suffering. So it's kind of a a two-way street on that one, but it's it's really been an exciting collaboration and, and exciting to see, you know, really their community change over time. There's a substantially greater amount of conversation around mental health and really that, that the way we like to talk around mental fitness. And so that's been exciting to see. We see employees or employees' family members who've done a program where when they, you know, for many people, when they start to address their mental health problem, it destigmatizes the issue. And so they sure. become more vocal. And so it's been really exciting to see uh, champions within the organization step up and say, hey, this is terrific. You should give it a shot. I think on the financial side, you know, we're able to see how we're lowering costs for uh, chronic conditions, you know, ER visits for mental health related concerns, um, lowering uh, sometimes meds costs for them. So we've seen a lot of reduction in costs. Um, and I think on average, they're seeing about a six to one, you know, return on investment uh, each year wow. on average. So it's, you know, again, it goes back to that notion that, you know, uh, investing in mental fitness for your employees and their families is a worthwhile financial approach too. It's yep. not just, a, it's not just the right thing to do. What type of therapists, what are, what are the professional backgrounds of therapists that uh, I sign up, I get online, and, you know, who do I see? Uh, are they psychologists? Are they licensed clinical social workers? Are they coaches? What what do I get when yeah. I sign up? Well, you know, we, we refer to, to those in our organization who do that as really as coaches. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're, they're coaching our members to kind of stick with the program, being a sounding board, answering questions they have. They're all master's level and higher psychologists or licensed, uh, you know, so master's level higher in social work. They're all licensed clinicians. Mm-hmm. And so, and we do that not because we do therapy by phone. So we don't do that. Um, 
they can do that. Um, but we, we, we really do coaching, which is to say, you know, we help people stick with the programs, which is really where all of the, the action happens, if you will, on the clinical side. Uh, but that being said, the reason why we have licensed clinicians working as coaches is because, they, A, they know the difference. And so, you know, as you can imagine, if you cross state lines, there's licensure requirements, there's all kinds of things that we want to be very thoughtful about from a regulatory perspective. Hmm. Uh, but also, if our members need something else, if they need a referral to primary care, or if in the, in the very low chance they're in crisis, then our coaches know exactly what to do, and they're trained to do that. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, when we do a, we do a lot of work with health plans, for example, you know, this is something that, as you can imagine, our health plans expect us to be able to manage. Uh, but also, we want to be able to link our members with other points in the ecosystem, the mental health care ecosystem that may be best for them. If someone wants to go see primary care, or they want to go to their counseling service at the University of Minnesota. We want to be able to connect them to that because maybe they started with us and we were the doorway, but now they're ready for that face-to-face, -face, which is great, mm -hmm. and uh, we can send them over there. So that's an important role that our coaches play, too, right. and it's all voluntary. So our members aren't required to work with a coach. Um, not, not all of them do, uh, but those that do really um, do, do quite well. Now, if, if, if I present and it becomes very apparent that I am suffering severe depression, mm -hmm. Would yeah. I continue to use your program, or would I get a referral? Typically, you'd get a referral. That's you know, what I we, thought. Yeah. Um, yep, and that's where you know the, the you know face to face, as you know, is a much more uh, focused intervention for higher mm -hmm. severity. You know, maybe medication is an important part of that process, and that's just not not in our model. Right. Uh, do you find there's some advantage in uh, someone in an organization? It can be the CEO or somebody else who's recognizable, who's had some mental health therapy to get up and tell their story to the employees in an attempt to move this to a discussion item and not a stigma item? You know, we find that, Jim, to be tremendously impactful, very helpful, and uh, and we, we certainly encourage that uh, wherever leaders are willing to, to, to do that. As you can imagine, as, as we know, when celebrities do that, when people in uh, positions of power, <clears throat> certainly, or, you know, positions of influence, talk about their own struggles really anywhere in their life. Um, but in this case, in mental health, it can be, it can be really compelling, you know, sure. and I think it even took me, a, you know, a few years to realize that, oh, I should tell my story. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in college, I, you know, very involved in athletics, and music, and I was pre-med, so a lot of studies. And everything was great, except that I was a little overextended and getting a little stressed out, and I was having trouble sleeping. And, you know, I was fortunate to, to meet uh, with someone on campus a couple of sessions and learned about CBT, and, you know, the light went on. So, you know, those, those are the kinds of stories that I think are important for us to share when we're comfortable. Uh, but certainly, uh, from a leadership point of view, it can be really powerful. What advice would you give to companies about why it's so critical today to address the mental health of their workforces? Two, two big reasons. I think one, because it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, and, all, you know, so many of us are touched by mental health um, that almost anyone in any organization at any level can think of a friend or a colleague or a former colleague who's been touched in some way by a mental health problem. Uh, but number two, it's, it's really there are costs, but, you know, uh, financial benefits. And so the ROI on investing in mental health is substantial. And I think if um, organizations aren't sure about that, 
um, they should seek you know, partnership with other organizations that can help them unlock that. Because once you see the numbers and once you dive into that, um, it's a, it's a powerful uh, financial proposition as well. Excellent. Well, Dale, thank you very much. I, I thought this was terrific today. It sounds like your organization is doing a great job. And I, I think all of this information is very helpful. Thank you for being with us. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing. To subscribe to this podcast series, visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com, where you'll find resources to help organizational leaders achieve tangible returns on well-being.